Ladies and gents, my name is Brandon Stover. I'm the founder of Plato University, and this is five science-based techniques to help your students remember more. All right, in my last video, I covered five techniques to help your students become smarter. We focus specifically within the explore stage of our three phases of learning. If you haven't seen the videos on the three phases of learning or the previous five techniques that I covered, links for those are in the description. But the techniques that we're going to cover today are going to be specifically aimed at helping your students move that information from their working memory to their long-term memory and being able to have that practiced over and over again. These techniques are specifically well for the engage phase in our three phases of learning. As a quick recap, those are explore, engage, and execute. So the first technique that we'll cover today is elaboration. Elaboration, or self-explaining, is basically the act of trying to explain something you're learning in your own words. And this will broaden the amount of associated links you have within your memory, making it much stickier. During elaboration, you're explaining and describing ideas with as much detail as possible, making connections between ideas and relating your own experiences. Now there's a specific method of elaboration called elaborative interrogation. Interrogation means to question. So during this process, you're asking questions around how and why things work and then producing those answers from your own mind. The reason elaboration matters so much is because if you're able to explain something in your own words, you most likely actually know and understand that material. Elaboration invokes deep processing where you're forming new associations and sometimes using chunking, as we described before in our previous five techniques, or deliberate practice, something we'll cover here in just a moment. During the process of elaboration, you're also doing something called the generation effect, where you're generating something from your mind, which allows you to retrieve it, organize it, and then restore it in your mind, allowing for quicker recall later on. Teaching other people also induces elaboration because you're often putting things into your own words and it requires you to process the information deeply and organize it in a way that the other person understands. You can also induce the effect of elaboration by explaining steps to solving problems and why you're doing them. In one experiment, students who explained their steps when solving logical reasoning problems scored 90% better on tests on the same material. Students who didn't self-explain their steps only scored 23%, quite a difference. Now, the reason that you would use elaboration besides some of the things that I just mentioned is by asking yourself why and how questions will encourage you to produce your own explanations, which means it'll be easier to integrate new material with past information in your memory. You're using your own associations. And according to research, by relating new material that you're learning with old material that you have in your memory, you're making it easier to recall both sets of information in the future. And finally, elaboration encourages you to make relationships between sets of information about how they're similar and how they're different giving you a logical understanding of how the world works. So how do you apply the elaborative technique? When you're learning different subjects, concepts, and ideas, begin asking yourself questions about how these things work and why they work that way. Then try to actively recall from your own mind information to answer those questions, putting that information in your own words and elaborating with as many details as possible. As you're doing this, start to make connections between multiple ideas, explaining how they work together or how they relate. An easy way to start doing this is to say how they're similar and how they're different. Then describe how the ideas that you're studying apply to your own life experiences. This creates intimate connections with information in your mind. Additionally, as you go about your day and you experience different things, try and make connections with the things that you're learning with what's happening in your real life. Again, you're making more sticky points for that information to stay in your memory. 
All right, let's move on to technique number two, which is spaced repetition. Spaced repetition is the practice of testing material that you're learning over longer intervals in order to increase the amount of effort you have to do in recalling that information, which in results will embed that information further into long-term memory. Now, the opposite of spaced repetition is where you cram a bunch of information in one session for a long, intense period of time and often close to the tests that's going to be on the material that you're studying. By using spaced repetition, you can take the amount, the same amount of study time that you would do in that cram session and spread it out over much longer periods. As a result, the same amount of study that you would do in that cram session is spread out and produces much better learning results. So you can say goodbye to cramming and immediately forgetting what you just learned. And you can say hello to remembering what you just learned for the rest of your life. Now, what does the science say about this? Well, by testing students at progressively longer intervals, allows for some forgetting of that information. This means that when you go to actively recall that information later, you're having to put more effort in, which leads to deeper and more durable understanding of that information. Because interrupting the process of forgetting is the most effective way in order to cement knowledge into your long-term memory. Now, these claims are supported by Hermann Ebbinghaus's discovery of the forgetting curve, which showed that memory is subject to an exponential loss immediately after learning something. His research showed that with spaced repetition, memory of what he was learning became better and better. And this forgetting curve explains when you try and cram learn information. And the forgetting curve ex explains why when you do a cramming session, that you often forget stuff immediately after you've learned it. And cramming actually takes more time in trying to learn that information than if you did it over spaced intervals. And finally, cramming often replaces sleep, which is important for mental and cognitive performance. When you're using spaced repetition, you will associate different contexts with the same material, providing more possible cues in your mind to retrieve that information later. And of course, this means better and easier memory. Because remember, when we have more cues and associative links in our mind, we have more opportunities to pull out that information when actively recalling it later. So how do you use space repetition? And there's four basic steps. Step one, plan days and times from when you're gonna study material. For example, you could create a daily habit of studying for 20 minutes per day. Step two, review information from each learning session, but not immediately after that learning session. So maybe on day one, you learn something, and on day two, you review day one's material, and so on and so forth. When you sit down to study or engage in a spaced repetition session, make sure that you're not just rereading your old notes, but instead using active learning techniques like active recall or elaboration, actively pulling things from your mind and explaining it in your own words. After you review information from the most recent learning session, so in our example, reviewing day one material on day two, make sure that you go back and study even older information in order to keep it fresh. So if we've been doing this for 15 days, maybe on day 15, you go back and study day one, two, and three's material just to keep it fresh in your mind. Now, a tool to help with spaced repetition is called a spaced repetition system, which was called a Lentner box. In this method, flashcards are sorted into boxes depending on how well you know the information. Then learners try and recall the solutions that are on the flashcards. If they succeed, they move that card to the next box. If they don't succeed, then that card goes back to the first box, the box that you'll always start studying from. As you move down the boxes in each succeeding box, the longer the period is from when you're gonna study that. So maybe in box one, you're studying that every day. In box two, you're studying that every other day. Box three, you're studying that once a week. Box four, you're studying that once a month. 
If you're succeeding in your answers, you're moving your answers closer and closer to the studying once per month. But if you're failing at those questions, you're putting that back into the box that needs to be studied every day. In the digital age, there's certain tools like Anki, which allows you to create flashcards or download other people's, and you can use pictures and audios and text in order to make your flashcards. And as you review those flashcards, you tell the software how difficult it was to answer that, and it makes a prediction about how much you need to keep studying that question. The end result of using a system like this is whittling down the information that you need to study on a daily basis and having a larger set of information that you only need to study every once in a blue moon just to keep it fresh in your mind. All right, on to technique number three, which is creating associations. Now, the principle of association is pretty simple. It states that learning is enhanced when associating new information with what is already known in your mind. Association plays a crucial role for when information is first encountered to be able to organize and store it, but then also when you're integrating new information with existing information, building more onto those mental models that you've created in your mind. And by associating new material with existing material, you're having multiple cues in order to retrieve that information later. And although somewhat of a paradox, the principle of association means that the more you know about a topic, the easier it becomes to learn because you have more places to associate that new knowledge with existing knowledge. The reason that you should be using associations is because you'll remember things more easily and understand how they relate to other concepts and ideas. As a result, you'll have a greater willingness to accept multiple perspectives known as integrative complexity. You know that ideas associate with one another. You'll be very welcoming to allow those perspectives to come in because you know you'll have more cues to remember things later. This also means that when a challenging problem comes up, you'll look for new ways to solve it because you have different associations and cues to rely on. You will also avoid the Einstellung effect, which refers to when a person keeps going down the same pathway to solve a problem, even though there may be a better way or more appropriate method for solving that problem. So how do you use associations? Well, as we discussed in our learning phases, beginning with Explore, you want to learn foundational material first. This means providing the most basic foundational material first and integrating new information to that over time. The foundational material provides a backbone to attach that additional information to. This creates an organized mental model to be built up in your mind. As you start integrating new information, you can use something known as concept mapping. It can be really easily done by writing down a few words and lines that connect those words depending on the relationship. Just a quick note on the difference between facts and concepts when you're creating a concept map. Facts are explicit pieces of information that you could point out with your five senses, such as names, dates, locations, things, and so on. Concepts are broader associations that bring these facts together to gain a more general sense of the properties of these facts. How are all these facts relating together to create a concept? And then how do all these concepts relate together in order to create a mental model? To help with these associations, you can use stories. Stories are built on an interlocking chain of causes and effects, associations between events that are happening, in order to create some sort of plot that's easily remembered. This allows you to take in large swaths of information and be able to store it in your mind. Additionally, when using a story, each part of it becomes a cue to tell you what the next part is. And stories also use emotion, which often creates stronger links and associations in your memory, and allows you to easily cue up that information when you're feeling that same emotion later. This associative chaining with emotion is the basis of trauma. Additionally, when you're creating these associations, associate the information 
with appropriate examples. The human memory is designed to remember concrete information better than abstract information. And abstract ideas are really hard to understand without having concrete examples. But these examples must be memorable. But these examples will be much more memorable if they're associated with existing information that you have in your mind. All right, let's move on to technique number four, which is mnemonics. Now, mnemonic closely follows associations, what we just spoke about. But the major difference here is we're creating multi-sensory neural associations between foreign concepts and the meanings that are associated with those concepts in order to remember things more easily. So in mnemonics, you're associating a word or a concept with a visual image that you create which induces dual coding and uses our natural superpowers in visual memory. And memories that are created using mnemonics are much stickier, which means they stay in long-term memory longer and more easily pulled to our conscious working memory when we need to use them. See, sometimes you need to remember large swaths of information and be able to deliver that information, such as in a speech. Mnemonics can be a very helpful tool used in that situation. See, research has found that our brains is able to recognize an image in as little as 13 milliseconds. So using our visual memory is faster, more reliable, and more efficient. And there's a growing body of research that shows visual memory is vastly superior than rote memorization. And it's easy to know why when we look at the human cortex, seeing that almost half of it is involved in processing visual images, while only 10% is given to auditory information. Now, mnemonics use sets of links from previous concepts to act as anchors for rapidly building new sets of links for new sets of concepts. This approach relates to something in neuroscience called neural reuse, where sets of links that were developed for one concept can be reused for a different concept. Now, before we get into how to develop mnemonics, let's talk about two disadvantages to using it. One, it takes a considerable amount of time up front in order to develop a mnemonic to remember a large swath of information. Two, recalling mnemonics is not as automatic as remembering information directly. Because remember, in mnemonics, we're creating an image that represents the information that we need to know. So you'd remember the image first and then the information, rather than just remembering the information right off the bat. It's a two-step process. Now, there's quite a wide variety of mnemonics that you can create, and I'm going to list out a few of them, first starting with verbal mnemonics. A verbal mnemonic can be something like an acronym like the acronym RICE, which stands for rest, ice, compression, and elevation. What you're doing is taking the first letter of each word that you need to remember and putting them in a logical sequence that is memorable, like RICE. RICE is much easier to remember than remembering rest, ice, compression, and elevation. Another verbal mnemonic is creating sentences that correspond to the words that you need to remember. For example, if I'm trying to remember the planets in order, I might remember the mnemonic, my very elderly mother, just served us noodles. And this would stand for Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Next, you can move into visual mnemonics. So you can create markers or vivid images of material that you need to remember. The more crazy and fun this vivid image is, the more likely you're to remember it. So start by taking some sort of concept that you need to remember and creating a highly detailed visualization of it. The more details and imagery that you can give to this visualization, the more likely you are to remember it. As you're doing this, try and opt for strange things that are novel to the mind. This could include absurd, bizarre, violent, or even sexual imagery. See, our hippocampus is tuned to remember things that are very strange. You can also leverage existing knowledge, making use of memories, images, and ideas that you already have in your existing knowledge. 
because our brain's going to pay special attention to information that's related to stuff that we already know. Now, a really advanced version of this visual mnemonic is something known as a memory palace or the method of Loki. This is where you create an image for every concept that you need to know and anchor these images in a physical location that you're familiar with and can remember. Now, unlike some of the other techniques that we've already spoken about, a memory palace allows you to remember large swaths of information in perfect order. Now, memory palaces are highly effective because they allow you to chunk information into manageable units. You also associate new information with deeply held memories, dramatically increasing their memorability. And you're also leveraging the brain's ability for spatial mapping, where we're creating long-lasting memories of every place that we've ever been. So if you need to remember a large swath of information in a particular order, you can develop a memory palace. To do this, choose a memorable location, maybe a home office, past homes that you used to live in, or maybe even a store that you visit. Next, determine the order of the information that you need to remember and start placing those in a logical sequence within that space. Then create novel images and markers for each piece of information that you need to remember and place these images in the designated locations within your memory palace. Once you've created it, practice going through your memory palace, stopping at each location and remembering that visual image and recalling the information associated with it. All right, we're on to our final active learning technique to help you remember more, which is deliberate practice. Now, deliberate practice is purposeful and systematic. See, regular practice might mean mindlessly repeating something. But with deliberate practice, you have a specific goal for improving performance, focusing your attention on specific things that need to be practiced in order to do that. Deliberate practice also requires getting feedback during the process. You're encouraged to make errors, give feedback, and then correct your practice in order to get better. Now, deliberate practice is the bread and butter of mastering any skill because it requires you to practice intentionally, resulting in rapid progress. Research by Anders Ericsson also shows that there's four key elements to deliberate practice. First, have a specific goal. Second, intensely focus during practice. Three, get immediate feedback while you're doing that practice. And four, put yourself in frequent discomfort by being at the edge of your abilities. This is also something known as desirable difficulty. Desirable difficulty, the main principle behind deliberate practice, is effortful, difficult learning that pushes the learner slightly beyond their current capabilities, just right outside the edge of what they know. This small elevation in difficulty increases the learner's retention. This is highly effective because you're creating just a few new neural associations with a large swath of existing information that you keep practicing over and over again. The people who really master the art of deliberate learning are committed to a lifelong journey of learning. They're always exploring, experimenting, and refining their process. So let's talk about how you go about deliberate practice. Recall our four elements that we need for deliberate practice. First, have a specific goal. What exactly are you practicing and why are you practicing it and how does it add up into your overall learning? Two, engage in intense focus during your practice. You want to set yourself up an environment that has no distractions and allows you to focus very intentionally on what you're doing. Three, get immediate feedback about what you're practicing. You're going to make errors and you need to know when those errors come up and how you can turn those errors around in order to have better practice in the future. And four, put yourself in frequent discomfort by just being at the very edge of your capabilities. Now, here's some tips about how you can make deliberate practice even better. When you're determining your goal, Figure out what the rate determining step is. 
This is the part of your learning that's forming a bottleneck and preventing you from learning the rest of the skill. This portion is something that you're going to want to practice over and over again because it's the hardest part for you to know and it's keeping you from learning everything else. When you're setting up an overall deliberate practice cycle, use the direct then drill approach. So practice the skill that you want to know in the environment in which you would be using that skill, in the exact way that you would be using it within that environment. During that process, within that environment, receive, receive feedback about how you're practicing that skill. Then isolate the parts of your practice that are rate-determining steps, pieces that are keeping you from moving forward, or are sub-skills of your practice that you need to learn better. From there, you develop drills in order to practice those steps, practicing them separately until you get better and can then add them back into the overall practice. So we're learning something very directly in the environment that we need to learn it. We're identifying a few steps that we need to get better at. We're developing drills for those steps that we can practice over and over again, and then integrating those sub-skills back into the overall practice, practicing again directly. Now, these active learning techniques will supercharge your ability and your students' ability to become smarter, remember more, and master any skills. But where do you use them? How do you integrate them into your courses? Use the link below and let's schedule a free call together. I'll help you work through your ideas and develop a strategy so you can use these techniques inside your course. When you get on the call, there's no hard sells because if you'd like my help implementing the strategy, then I'd be happy to do so. Otherwise, you can take the strategy and run and implement it yourself. So use the link below. Let me help you turn your wisdom into actionable education. Let's build something great together.